This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Well, welcome back. This is episode three. Today on Lyme disease, we're going to talk about neurological symptoms, neurological problems. And I'm going to start off, kind of give a little bit of introduction. We're going to talk about the immune system, some of the physiology that goes on. Um, then I'll introduce who's, what the other topics the other doctors are, are going to be talking about. So we all know that Lyme disease itself uh, is an inflammatory disease that affects the skin uh, in the early phases. It'll affect the, um, the joints even to the muscles, then it'll spread to the nervous system, and then to a lesser extent, even to other organs and other systems in the body as it begins to what we call decimate itself down. So then how does Lyme affect the immune system? Well, here's what we do know. The research has found that the Borrelia burgdorferi, how you like the way I said that? It's got fun with it. Anyway, the Borrelia bacteria, right, is able to trick the immune system from launching a full-blown immune response or even developing last immunity to the bacteria. Why is that significant? Because when we look at how it'll bite the animal first, it overrides the animal's immune system and therefore picks up its ability to fight our immune system when we get infected or we get bit by it. So this explains why some people remain vulnerable, vulnerable to, <laughs> to the immune system or to being re, uh, reinfected or have repeat infections getting bit over and over, over again. And why some people even uh, have differentiations of that strain of Lyme disease throughout the rest of their life. So we do know that in some people, the bacteria initially triggers a stronger immune response. We've talked about that on the bullseye rash. But soon it causes structural abnormalities into what we call the germinal centers of the lymphatic system. Now inside the lymph node or the lymph system, when we start looking at these germinal centers, what they do, they're supposed to actually develop a response to it. And this bacteria breaks that down. So now our body has the inability to do that. So the months after the infection, those germinal centers fail to produce specific memory cells, uh, which is part of our immune system, and the antibody producing plasma cells that are crucial for producing lasting immunity. So in effect, the bacteria prevents the immune system from forming a memory of it being invaded, right? And therefore, when it gets invaded again, or when it uh, continues to uh, maturate or grow or change, then the body can't fight off those infections. It also suggests why uh, some blood tests may not be an effective method of detecting the previous exposure to limes, and it gives us some insight to the possible mechanism responsible for the disappearance of the antibodies, right, that are following the infection and subsequent treatment with antibiotics. And some of you have experienced that, you know, you think you have limes, you went and got down and got tested, and it was false positive. We'll talk about some of those here in the next session, right? Researchers found that following the Borrelia infection, the process even prevented the induction of strong immune responses to the common influenza, right? So more we talk about the in, in, an influenza infection. 
So the theory is that's how the autoimmune reaction begins. We talked about some of the differences between what the CDC talks about and other people talk about. Do you have a chronic Lyme? Is there such a thing as a chronic Lyme? So what is it? Or is it just an autoimmune reaction to some other condition developing in your body? So once the process has occurred, then we begin to see the dysfunctions inside the nervous system. So that leads to what we call neurological Lyme disease or neuroborreliosis. Yeah, right. see, it's, yeah. it's easy to say it is, which is a simply a disorder of the central nervous system. So I'm going to just kind of hit a couple of caveats and we're going to pass this off. But the central nervous system involvement comes to what we call a Lyme meningitis, which is an infection of the lining of the brain, the spinal cord, which can cause fever, headaches, sensitivities to light, stiff necks, those kind of things. Then we even get cranial nerve involvement. When the cranial nerves are infected, it can cause bells, falls, facial palsy, which is a drooping effect can occur either on either side or both sides. And then we even have the peripheral nerve involvement. When, where the peripheral nerves are affected and patients develop radicular type of neuropathies, which cause numbness, tingling, shooting pain, weakness in the arms and legs. So the other doctor is going to go do a deeper dive in more specific issues with the neurological Lyme disease. Dr. Kyson, he's going to go over the central nervous system, talk about the neurotransmitters and brain fog issues. Dr. Caleb is going to talk about the enteric nervous system and the effects that has on our lives. Dr. Craig is going to talk about the autonomic nervous system and the toll that has on our personal lives. And then Dr. Luke's going to talk about the peripheral nervous system and the neuromuscular system, physical pain, joint pain. So without any further ado, Dr. Luke. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Ben. Um, just like you said, we're going to hit on how the uh, bacterium from the Lyme or the co-infections affect the uh, peripheral nerves. And essentially what that does is cause a toxicity or irritation to those nerves. And I mean, I had a gentleman this morning even who had a hard time even walking in because of how this was affecting uh, not just his nerves, but... Uh, I think this is a good little insight into how progressive and, and degenerative this can be is he really started battling with this around 2014, 2015, and he very lean man, 220 pounds of pure muscle. He's about six one and about 30 to 40 pounds he had lost over the course of his treatment about a year or two, simply because of how uh, the Lyme and the, the, uh, co-infections were affecting his muscles and his nerves. So it essentially just atrophies away as you're going through these, you know, degenerative processes with Lyme. And not only that, but it affects, uh, not just the nerves, but the joints, uh, it, it eats away. And he was diagnosed with RA at a very young age. Uh, it also can cause the uh, radicular neuropathy which again is the numbness, tingling, shooting type pain or weakness in the arms and the legs. Again, difficulty walking, uh, impaired motor control or, or, you know, patients oftentimes feel like they drop stuff or lose control uh, over, you know, otherwise mundane tasks. And uh, the muscles can become easily fatigued with a minimal workload. And so, it can be very frustrating, especially for more active people who have more of an active job or more of an active lifestyle and like to exercise where they're not even able to walk inside from their car to the gym, uh, let alone perform a workout. So, uh, yeah, very much, uh, you know, debilitating from, from that aspect. So, um, that is, you know, pretty much it on far as far as a quick look at how Lyme and co-infection can affect the uh, peripheral nervous system and the uh, musculoskeletal system. So uh, without further ado, I'll go ahead and turn it on over to uh, Dr. Craig. Thanks, Dr. Luke. You're a great guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm going to talk about how it affects the autonomic nervous system. To me, there are really 
two aspects to this. First, there's the direct effect and the indirect effect. The indirect effect is the, as Dr. Luke was talking about, the inflammation that occurs even down to a cellular level, you can actually have what's called a cell danger response, which I find really interesting. What happens at a cellular level, if if the cell detects a potential danger, um, it will actually change its function. It actually shuts the function down and then can lead to a cascade of things that actually make the brain and autonomic nervous system aware and, and can engage the more of a systemic fight or flight. But what's interesting is that this occurs at within the mitochondria. The mitochondria detects changes or drops in uh, energetic uh, frequency or flow. And what it does is it shuts down its production of ATP and actually floods the extracellular space with ATP. And the protein membranes or the protein um, receptors detect this and it shuts the internal functions down until the body can deal with the virus and its co-infections. Then there is a direct effect. If we have an inflammatory reaction at the in the autonomic nerve cells, you're going to get both either an inappropriate excitation of the nerve pathways, and so you get things firing that shouldn't be firing, or you get a, a interference with firing, and so now they don't function properly. So, and this can create all kinds of issues, such as it could affect memory, decision making, managing emotions, goal setting, all those type of things. It can also have an effect since the autonomic surface system is what controls all of our organs. Uh, it can affect things like your heart rate, your blood pressure, your liver, digestive function, all these type of things as well. And, and as Dr. Luke talked about, you can see how this just starts to become a cascade of problems. It builds and it builds and it builds. And so what I think is interesting, I think the emotional response tends to mirror this as well. That I think what happens at a cellular level, the cell basically uh, almost goes into an anxious response of here's a problem and then it shuts down which goes into a depressed response and then it seeks to fight as best it can and then it gets goes into exhaustion and goes back into that fatigue and we kind of go through this vicious cycle of fear and depression and, and anger and so you know all joking aside we, we like to have fun but for these patients what they experience personally and emotionally is devastating you know I, I'm sure they you know you first first get some condition you're like what's going on with me uh, i'm afraid what what am i dealing with and then once you do know what you're dealing with it's like is this ever going to go away and then i think over time you become overwhelmed and depressed and you don't feel like doing anything you don't want to do anything which then further complicates it because you as you talked about you don't move we're going to talk about later some of the treatment options and, and one of the things i'm going to talk about is lymphatic effect movement is necessary to move lymph and and uh, basically the trash within the system. And then I think what happens is we, we try to rise up and we fight. We go into almost this anger or, or fight mode, which then eventually exhausts the adrenal system, exhausts, uh, exhausts the thyroid system, exhausts the brain in its pituitary uh, attempts to change metabolism. And so then we collapse back into this um, depression and it just becomes this um, ever degenerating yeah, downward spiral into this, you know, life that none of them want to live, which then kind of ties into what Dr. Caleb's going to talk about and how that plays into their interplay with other people. So take it over. Right. Thank you, Dr. Craig. Hey, you're welcome. And you're a great guy too. Thanks. <clears throat> so like uh, Dr. Craig was talking about, you know, the autonomic nervous system 
affects all these different organs. What I'm going to talk about is more specifically on the enteric part of the nervous system, which is around the gut. Now, a big aspect of that ties into the vagus nerve, which is a huge aspect of that autonomic nervous process. And uh, it really is one of the main go-betweens between the brain and the gut, as well as all the other organs. But um, if you look at the vagus nerve, 20% of the transmission is efferent or brain to gut. And then 80% is afferent, meaning their signals going from the gut or from the organs to the brain. So it, you know, like I said, we talk about the gut as a second brain because there is so much signaling coming up to the brain from that. There's so much that your body interprets from what's going on in your gut. And, uh, <clears throat> When the uh, the vagus nerve and the enteric nervous system, so the nerves that surround the uh, intestinal walls, when all of those get inflamed by by the uh, Lyme, it uh, causes disruption to that signaling process. And if it it can either disrupt what we're receiving uh, or what the brain is receiving from that, or even the transmission going down, which is part of our motility, being able to break down food, being able to actually transmit or move that food through the uh, GI tract. Um, <clears throat> so when we have disruption of that, we can have what's called gastroparesis. And um, I've actually known a patient that had this issue in the past. And it basically the the ability of the intestines to kind of squeeze and push the stools through or the waste through the system stops. And so you get this big obstruction, you get a blockage, and it really affects in a lot of ways. Uh, you can have acid reflux, you can have really bad abdominal pain. Uh, a lot of times you're gonna get that bloating or fullness sensation. Um, you're not gonna be eating as much, which means you're gonna have poor digestion, you're gonna have malnutrition. What you do eat, you're not breaking down as well either. And then a lot of times this can lead to nausea and vomiting, and especially with the vomiting, you can see often food coming up that is undigested. So you see that there's just a whole breakdown in that process. And, you know, if you're not being able to break down and process and use what you're eating, then your body's going to starve to death. Even if you're eating as much as you can and it's not getting through the system, not being processed, your body is still in a mode of starvation. And that's what these people have to face. And, you know, Dr. Craig kind of started touching on the um, social toll that plays on people. You know, we deal with a lot of depression, a lot of uh, anxiety, a lot of other, you know, psychological issues that are, you know, just because we're stuck in this mode and we can't really move past it, you know, it, there's a lot of trauma that goes on just on, from a mental aspect and emotional aspect as well. But uh, just to get more into, you know, the social aspect of it, you know, there's a... Um, website called tiredoflime.com and they did a survey and they were basically asking people that came to the website and did the survey how their social life was affected. Now, out of the people that took this, 57.9% said social life, what social life? That's almost six out of 10. So more than half the people said they really had no social life. And then the other 42.1% said that their life was somewhat affected because they were still able to see friends and family, but not the way they used to. You know, they, they had limitations. And what I thought was really interesting is 
said they had no change. So granted, there could be a little bit of bias because people going to a website called tiredoflime.com probably have significant issues or already struggling with a lot of that. But still, this shows that there is a very strong dynamic in the ability to disrupt your life from Lyme, whether it's the physical limitations, which we've talked about, the extreme fatigue, the brain fog, um, joint muscle pain, issues with sleep, headaches, depression, um, even the neuropathy, you know, where the, the, um, we have radiculating pains or radiating pains into the arms and legs. Also, uh, burning feet is one that I hadn't really associated with this before, but I was actually talking to another patient recently who was concerned that they had diabetes because they were like, well, I have burning feet and that's a you know diabetic neuropathy. That's a common sign. And a lot of people in her family have been dealing with, you know, diabetes. So she's like, well, I've been doing pretty good, but it, is it my turn, you know? And thankfully we're able to go, well, no, this is a part of Lyme's disease, but that can really cause a lot of confusion when it comes to that. And another two, or another thing too, is just thinking about why people struggle with their social life. Aside from the physical limitations, there's also the uh, part of avoiding explaining their condition. You know, either a fear of embarrassment because they don't know what's going on, or you know, because they're being so affected by something that really most people don't have a clue about or don't understand, or they're just tired of being misunderstood. And it is a tiring process to explain these symptoms and to explain what's going on to everybody you meet. And so sometimes it's easier to just stay at home, you know, and that's what we're finding with a lot of them. And it makes a lot of sense because if you think about it, on your way to being diagnosed with Lyme, you usually have to go through a couple other diagnoses, right? It's not the first thing on the list. So chronic fatigue syndrome is one of the big ones, also known as myalgic encephalomyelitis. Um, and that's basically just a syndrome. So anytime we say syndrome, that's a collection or pattern of symptoms that they people have recognized, but they don't know what causes it, and they just want to put a label on it. You know, someone chose to put a label on it. So that anytime you see syndrome, it's something that they don't understand. They just want to have a name for it. And so with chronic fatigue syndrome, we see a lot of profound fatigue, you know, the sleep disorders, the pain, the brain fog, all these symptoms that we're talking about. But one of the worst things I think is if you look online or if you talk to a medical you know, professional, they're going to tell you that treatment can help, but it can't cure the disease. And I think that is one of the, the worst things because, and I'm sure Dr. Craig can attribute to this as well, but when you have that told to you, you enter a survival mindset, which means you can't do anything else but survive it. You can never get past it. You can never live life. And this was something I even kind of had to deal with in my own life recently as I was doing a blog on uh, living through the holidays with loss. I was originally going to do surviving, but during that process, I was able to go, well, I don't want to just survive. I want to live. And that changed my whole mind frame, changed my whole kind of pro or, uh, directive as far as how I was dealing with my grief. And in the same way, somebody who's dealing with these type of conditions, they're going to struggle with that grief, struggle with those same types of thought processes. And if you're told that there's no hope, you're not going to have any hope unless you are really resilient. And, you know, we talked about how one of the main things we want to do here is bring hope to people who 
most often feel hopeless. So another thing is if they're told it's a psychosomatic condition. Basically, that just means, well, your brain is causing the symptoms. You're, you're imagining it or you're thinking it up. Whether intentional or not, you're, you're basically told that you're crazy in a way. And, you know, it just goes back to how these people, you know, it's hard to explain when the doctors can't even explain to them what's going on. So I think that's one of the big issues we see with the social toll of how people are really affected by it, um, both physically and mentally and emotionally. But uh, I know that um, with the disruption in the enteric nervous system, we also see a breakdown in the microbiome or how that's being processed. So we know a lot of bacteria, a lot of the aspects of the microbiome send or produce neurotransmitters and how that affects with the brain. But I'll let uh, Dr. Kyson go into more depth on that. Real quick, before you, what I think is interesting as you're talking about that is I think what it does is it changes the whole identity of the person. Mm -hmm. And we always act out of our identity. And if you take on this identity of, I, it's almost like you take on the identity of the disease and that becomes who you are, you can't change that. And it doesn't matter what treatment you do. And I think that's really important to differentiate that out and go, okay, this is, I, I tell this to my patients frequently, this is not who you are, it's what you're experiencing. And that's a really important distinction because if you don't, I don't care what you're going to do, they're not going to get better. Yeah. And that's one thing I like about our focus too in the clinic is we're less focused about naming something than actually fixing or, you know, bring, making progress or bringing healing into the body. That's our focus. Right. Well, we, we frequently say we don't care what you have. We care why you have it. All right. Uh, one, one more thing, just uh, with what Dr. Cave was talking about, we're talking about the gut there. So when the uh, peristalsis slows down or we get low motility there, what we go from a detoxification phase where the body's trying to push toxins out to everything becomes stagnant and the body's still reabsorbing fluid and water and all these toxins get reabsorbed back in the body again, which then starts increasing the toxic load even more. And so you go from a detox cycle to what we call the retox cycle. You retoxify yourself because you can't get it moving. So now you're overwhelming your body on one more level. You're changing your pH, your environment, which starts to create more toxins building up here and becomes more of an issue. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about central nervous system, neurotransmitters, and especially brain fog. Because when it comes to Lyme, this is a big one that people deal with is brain fog. And so understand where this is really coming from. There, there's lots of different areas, but for the mo most part with Lyme disease, it's usually considered ammonia. Ammonia is one of the big ones there. So understanding what ammonia is. So ammonia is one nitrogen combined with three hydrogen. So 78% of the air that we breathe is nitrogen. So while it's in the air, it's in a stable format, so it, it's safe. But when you bring nitrogen gas by itself, this is what they create TNT and dynamite and all these other things off of nitrogen can be very explosive. I mean, it, it's something that's used in all kinds of different uh, aspects in different um, fields of uh, combustion and things like that. So it can have a, quite the effect. So in the body, it has to be held in a stable form. So the hydrogen bonds to it and it creates a somewhat stable form called ammonia. Ammonia is a toxic substance that is produced by the breakdown of amino acids or nucleotides in our body. And then it gets bound up in the liver and creates urea, which then goes to the kidneys and gets expelled as urine. And you can usually tell when you have that ammonia smell coming out of the urine, that's what it is. This is the breakdown of the protein stuff. 
So when we look at brain fog, we can have this happen in a couple different levels here. So we can have it where the urea or the ammonia builds up in the body, it builds up in the bloodstream because the liver can't keep up with the demand load. And so it overwhelms the system. So you have a whole lot of it, it's spilling out to the blood. So we get what we call hyperammonemia, which is excess ammonia in the blood, which then gets up into the brain because it crosses the blood brain barrier and it starts to come in there and starts to cause inflammation issues in there. Now, this will usually show up on a test. If you test ammonia, you usually see it because it's systemic through the body. Now, with Lyme disease, when you get that up in the brain, it can actually take the urea and break it back down into ammonia. And then so ammonia can accumulate in a closed environment where it may not necessarily uh, get back into the blood supply for a test. And so it can be localized there. So the doctor goes into the test him. Nope, ammonia is low, not an issue. And yet you're just absolutely just going out of your mind, going bonkers because of the ammonia that's going on there. That's creating a big issue. So not only does that have a huge issue because when we get overwhelmed in the body because the liver can't keep up with it and going back to what he was talking about, how it can retoxify the body, start getting things coming back into the body again, slowing the liver down so it can't keep up with the demand load of the ammonia, then it starts back in the system there. So this is called hepatic encephalopathy. Encephalopathy. Wow. <laughs> there it is. Easy for one of us to say, but maybe not me. So when this happens, this is that cascade event that goes through the body there. And encephalopathy is usually when you have a disease or a toxin that is affecting the blood now. So it's a pathology of the brain or the head. And this starts to become a major factor here. So when we look at this ammonia creating this huge problem in there, which can lead to all kinds of issues of pain, nausea, numbness, fatigue, it can create all kinds of uh, trouble with uh, mental stress, emotional stress in the body. It can affect your limbic system. So it'll affect your neurotransmitters and how you deal with that. The stress in the body, when you have to go through and do tasks throughout the day and it requires so much mental focus and you can't do that, and you're starting to fall behind on what you have. Now you have a different type of stress level. Am I going to be able to keep my job? Am I going to be able to get through the day? Am I going to be able to do all these different things I need to do? And so when that happens, now we switch over from a normal rest and digest parasympathetic phase into a sympathetic dominant phase where it's fight or flight. I got to do this or else. And so now cortisol goes up. And when cortisol goes up, we get into this phase. We've now shifted out of it completely out of our rest and digest, heal and repair phase, which is what we need to build our immune system, to be able to fight the stuff off. And so now we're being manipulated on a secondary or tertiary level by these bacteria, by the way, they're influencing a cascade of events through our body. Now, the other side of it is we see ammonia sometimes breaking down into nitrogen gas in the brain. And this is interesting because I had a patient from uh, the French Riviera, the south of France there, come in. She had MS, what she was diagnosed with. And she said, it feels like I have the bends. Now she grew up scuba diving. And so she'd come up for oxygen too fast, come up to the surface too soon. And she ended up getting the nitrogen gas bubbles throughout her joints and her muscles and excruciating pain. But she goes, that's what it feels like through my whole body. And so through one of our methodologies of testing that we use, we were able to use a test file of nitrogen. And we were actually able to find that at to a certain level on her head that she had a, a nitrogen gas issue. And when she laid down, it moved and shifted according to gravity and her uh, position according to the ground. And we see that it moved. And so this is like a gas bubble in the brain. And if you think about what nitrogen does to the brain, especially how painful it is just in the pains and the joints and muscles that you're going through. And she always felt like her head is on fire. And one of the cool things for her, though, is when we put her in an HBOT or hyperbaric chamber, 
She said she felt like she could rest and actually sleep. And she just begged to stay in there all day long because it was the only time she felt peace. So as that we force that oxygen into her body with that hyperbaric chamber, it gave relief to the brain there a little bit. And about half an hour after getting back up and sitting up, it was an issue. Now, the motor cortex, the motor strip of your brain is sitting here up on top, which has to do with your movement and things like this and control of that. And she's seated up, seated in an upright position all the time. She's constantly going to have that nitrogen bubble there. And it took us a couple of weeks. We found a couple of ways to treat that. And it took us a couple of weeks, but we actually got that cleared out of there. And some of her symptoms started to improve. And so it was a very interesting case with that. So as we look at nitrogen in itself in the body, it has to be handled and packaged correctly and taken out of the body correctly. And so that's a big part of what we're dealing with, especially with the, the brain dysfunction here, because Borrelia burgdorferi produces a enzyme called urease, and that the, breaks the urea down to the ammonia again, which creates this issue, which causes all kinds of struggles in our life. And this goes back to social, goes back to dealing with our personal issues that we're dealing with. And, and across the entire uh, nervous system, we struggle with it, which then starts to affect our immune system as well, as we were talking about earlier, because we are stuck in this fight or flight response where everybody's at their battle stations ready for a war and nobody's back there doing their job to repair and fix things so things start to fall apart. And so one of our approaches is here is we need to address the ammonia. Now, the best way to do that is to deal with the underlying cause. Now, I'm probably going to ruffle some feathers here and there's going to be another a lot of other limerlit doctors here that are going to call me crazy, but I am not a fan of binders. I mean, people get put on binders for years. And what I find is after two, three, four, six months of some of these binders, they start to develop allergies or toxicities or even sensitivities to some of these things. So you have to switch to a different type of binder. And so you keep throwing these different types of band-aids on here and you're not getting to the end results. Now, I'm not completely against binders. I mean, I'm okay with it for an acute situation, temporarily. Two to four weeks, let's do this. You're in a rough spot. Let's get you out of it. Any more than that, though, we're just chasing our tail here. We're not actually getting results and that's not the direction any of us want to go. So we focus a little bit more on actually treating the organs and the lymph for getting things moving versus a binder that gets stuck again. When we get low movement through the gut, all these binders are bound to these toxins. Well, they're not getting cleared out. They're just sitting there. And so it creates more issues or they get stuck in the biofilm and creates more problems. So we want to be able to excrete all those out as best as possible. And so this is a big part of dealing with this. Now, there's other options. You can take ornithine to speed up the urea cycle. You can take um, yucca or yucca is a really good um, product to use that helps with that. You know, if you want to do some stuff to actually excrete that hydroxy B12, it depends on where you're at in your methylation and your genome on what you do with that. So. Um, the other big thing is people who have issues with the CBS pathway or your transsulfuration pathway will have a little bit more issue naturally creating more ammonia and more sulfur issues in the body than people who don't. So some people may be more prone to this issue based on different dysfunctions in the CBS pathway there. And that'd be something that's interesting to talk about. We specialize in a lot of genomic stuff in our clinic here. So that'd be things that we could look at as well as far as what you need and what you may need just to help process all that. Um, just to stay on a, on your top of your game once we get you there. So when and Dr. Casey, when we look at the nitric oxide specifically and the ammonia breakdown, what we remember is that nitric oxide is the, the substance that you need, take anything in and out of any cell, any organ, any system, whatever it is. And when you bind up ammonia into urea or urea into ammonia, and you can't get your nitrogen to break down out of the air you breathe, then 
it's supposed to live in your brain anyway. The nitric oxide is, all right? And it goes to all these different systems. So when we start having that phase and we get the transulfuration, the CBS pathway, we start seeing that now becomes more stress and more orientated in there. We have hormone dysregulation. That whole pathway starts shutting down and we see all these things. And I, I like it because earlier you are talking about, here's my mental picture. Think about living in a house where everything comes in but nothing goes out. What happens? Eventually you get a toxic house. Well, now hoarders. Well, I wasn't <laughs> going to use that word, but but now you get a toxic house, which invites more insects, more pests, more things, more other aspects that are in there. And now you're living in that toxic environment. And that was the retox. And when that affects the nitric oxide, you're on the down the downward slope. We'll even go a step beyond the nitric oxide is when we get nitric oxide uncoupling. Now we start developing peroxynitrite and superoxide. And these are all the super inflammatory reactive oxygen species that start flowing through the body that we have to address as well. And so different people, different genome issues will need to be addressed and, and taken care of a little bit differently as we go through some of these different pathways. And that's why I think our approach is so personalized to you. There's no cookie cutter approach here. When you walk in, we, we start the blank slate and we look at, okay, what do you need? How do we go through? How do we process them? What's the best way to move forward for you to get you the best results with the least amount of side effects? I mean, herxing something that it's, it's very rare that we deal with that because of our approach. And yet I talk to so many people that say, well, that's just normal part of my treatment. I'm like, well, that's just horrible. It's a tough way to go through it. But, you know, we're trying to address all these other issues that need to be fixed before we start trying to go in and take care of some of the bigger issues. I mean, Dr. Bowery has always said, we're trying to get you well enough to get well enough, you know? And so we've got to get to some things working and some processes working before we can even start to go after that. And sometimes it's a dual effect. So yeah, we're going to go through and we try to treat some of these things while we're trying to minimize the effect of what Lyme's doing to you. And so sometimes it's not going through necessarily killing off Lyme, but it's trying to limit its actions and limit its ability to actually be able to process and to slow it down so it doesn't overwhelm the systems and allow us to do that. So we have different ways that we address that and, and come at it. And so sometimes we can do that very well where the natural immune system can come up and actually start to get control of it again. I think that's what we're doing, some of our newer stuff that we're doing. So it's pretty interesting to be able to go through and and really take a wide spectrum approach, a wide view of, of what's going on and be able to narrow that down to specifically the best pro process or pathway to go to get you the best results. I think that kind of also ties in. To me, our, our approach is always about your body is going to want to heal itself. That's what it's trying to do all the time. Our, our biggest goal is to remove any interferences with that because, you know, people will come in and go, well, you you healed me, you helped me, you saved me. No, we just helped your body do what it was created to do. And I think it's that difference between being you're either thriving or you're surviving and, and, this whole Lyme condition tends to put you into that survival mode. You're not living. You're just surviving. And, and we seek to get the body back into that thriving place. So our concept is just to really to simply put it this way is we want you to be heard. We want to find out what is really wrong, not just that you have Lyme or Lyme's disease or chronic Lyme's or post-Lyme's post -Lyme's treatment disease, whatever we want to talk about. We want to hear you and we want you to felt heard. And then we want you to understand that we're going to take whatever symptomatology your body has and we're going to start trying to figure out what's the best way to attack this for your body because it's unable to go to war with it. And so, as Dr. Kite said, we want to get you well enough that you can get well. And that's our whole objective here at DLC. So, one of the things I, that I think is interesting to note here, and I don't know how many of you guys have Lyme patients that come in that that's all they have. 
I mean, usually when I have Lyme patients come in, we're, we're dealing with mold issues. We're dealing with parasites. We're dealing with all these other things here. And that's what's made it so bad that they've got to this point that they've tried everything else. Nothing is working. So not only is it a, um, a gentle or a very delicate or elegant approach. I like that. An elegant approach to how we treat you, but it's taken into account all the other conditions that you may be dealing with at the same time. So if you have parasites, if you have mold issues, if you have whatever else it is that's in there, viruses, different things that are stuck in your system, well, that kind of changes the puzzle from just a flat puzzle on the table to a three-dimensional puzzle that we have to be able to look at, not just X and Y, but also Z axis to figure out which direction we move in. And this may shift and change dynamically depending on what we do. Sometimes I have a patient that, hey, you need to take this in the morning every day. And then we clear out one disease or one entity and all of a sudden it completely swaps. And so you need to take in the evening now. And they go, well, that doesn't make sense. I go, well, it does because now we shifted and changed the dynamic of your body. And so that's a good sign because it's showing that things are moving. If we're constantly taking the same thing over and over again, every day at the same dose and everything else, what are we accomplishing? I mean, we're not, we're, we're not fixing anything. So we like to see these dynamic changes because it means that things are shifting and changing in the body. We're getting movement. One last thing I would tie into that, because this it kind of ties into our own individual approach too, is one thing I tell people frequently, these entities exist in your environment all the time. It's how you interact with them that's really the issue. And that's why our approach is so individualized. You can have two people that have Lyme disease, and our approach is not the same for both. And this it kind of ties into your point. This is one thing I was going to talk about in a later episode is the one caveat I would put on us compared to just a typical Lyme literate doctor is they're focused on Lyme disease. We see the bigger picture is Lyme typically isn't just Lyme disease. There's so many co-infections or parasites and mold and all these other things that go along with it as well. And it's it's how all those interplay together that we really go after. Well said. And sometimes we don't have a picture to what the puzzle looks like. So it's it takes a little bit to to figure out where we're at and what we're dealing with there. So Because somebody you know, threw the box away or what? <laughs> yeah, it didn't come with the picture. So we got the puzzle here. So it takes us a little bit sometimes to actually figure out what we're dealing with. But that's because we're actively moving and changing and shaping things to actually figure out where you need to go and to get the best results. You mean we don't try to make the pieces fit? <laughs> <laughs> no comment <laughs> a lot of people do so no we try to make everything come together so the picture is beautiful at the end and we can see your destiny all right well hey i want to thank everybody for paying attention or staying tuned to this, this is a very long one but uh, the next one we have coming up we're going to talk about some of the traditional uh, ways that we identify and or test and then we're going to talk about the alternative ways to do it so stay tuned Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.